Rethink the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shackley. And we're your hosts. Today, we're still in conversation with each other. It's um, my turn to ask Stephanie some questions about her life with disability. And then we turn to a brief conversation about some of the future things to expect. Um, We will talk to people who aren't just each other. Thank you for joining us today. So Stephanie, when I called you and said, hey, I've got this like slightly, slightly large idea and goal. Do you want to be a partner in this? Um, one of the things you identified fairly early on in why you said yes, which I'm still thankful for, <laughs> was that uh, all of the COVID-19 pandemic um, and your experience in that and, and what you were seeing in that in your parish and in your life played a big role in saying yes. Um, can you tell me more about some of that? Um, absolutely. I From the very beginning of the pandemic, as we were all learning, I guess, really at the same time and trying to grapple with what was going on and things were, I mean, I'm in New Jersey. So when things shut down, they shut down. Um, It wasn't sort of the sort of shutdown that happened in a lot of places. I mean, we basically went into our houses for like two months and, and I don't know. And well, time is all a great unknown these days. I don't remember how long we really were going nowhere, but there were no cars on the streets. I mean, it was a very significant shutdown for a long time. Um, there was so much that I would hear in the media, read online, um, just and it was coming from all different places about how this was really on only going to affect certain kinds of people, vulnerable people, I guess is one of the kind of code phrases, elderly people, people with quote pre-existing conditions. Um, you know, and there were people who were genu- genuinely concerned about the safety of the people that they that we thought at the beginning that would affect the most. But there were also people who were just would say things that sounded as if they were irritated that those people were inconveniencing you know us all. That if it was really true, and we didn't, we admittedly didn't know a whole lot about this this virus. Um, but if it was true that those people were the ones who were most likely to have serious effects or most likely to die, then those people were just, there was such an attitude and a tone that those people were an inconvenience and a problem. And maybe they should just stay home or maybe they should just disappear or, you know, maybe they should, to paraphrase our Lieutenant governor of Texas, maybe the grandma should die for the economy. And, um, I just, I was horrified by that. Um, it rattled me. It really, it really struck me. It rattled me. I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, and I, and it just for, it highlighted for me the sense of, um, the sense I already had that there's so much entrenched ableism in our society um, and that there's, there are so many ideas about some people being essential and others being disposable. And that's true in sort of many categories that there are all these ideas out there about who counts and who doesn't. And I just found that morally repugnant. I mean, there's just no way around, around that. And I find that to be stuff, frankly, out of the fascist playbook and out of the Nazi playbook. Um, And, and I mean, when, unfortunately, the unfortunate thing about that is of course that they didn't make that stuff up themselves. They got a lot of that from, you know, eugenicists here in the United States in the 19th and 20th century, but wherever it came from, I mean, we're not here for a history lesson on eugenics, but I just felt like all of a sudden I was seeing things that people were saying out writing and saying out loud that um, I've really had a problem with, and it highlighted for me, um, and, it, and and church was not an, an exception to that. Sometimes some of it was being said in church circles. Um, and it highlighted for me the reality that um, we have not, as a society in general, 
Um, and as church in particular, you know, specifically as faith communities in particular, we haven't done work on disability justice and we haven't really talked about these issues. Um, and I've been aware of these issues to a greater or lesser degree for my whole life, but I was seeing it all kind of laid bare in a new way. And I thought maybe it's time to talk about it. Yeah. I, I just love how that ended. Um, so you say that you've been aware of these issues in a greater or lesser extent your whole life. Um, yeah. Can you tell us all a little bit about how you, you and I have spoken and I, I know that it was not like an automatic thing. How did you come to self-identify as disabled and be comfortable with that identity? <laughs> That's two different questions. <laughs> I know I had to, I had to like make it a little harder there. <laughs> I mean, wait a second. <laughs> he didn't tell me about that. So we, I was not worried about that second question. Comfortable-ish. <laughs> okay. So, um, so for anybody who knows me well, the, this first question, how did you come to identify as disabled might seem like an odd question. Um, and because if you, if you know me, you know that I have a form of albinism, which is, um, you know, a congenital, uh, disorder. It's autosomal recessive. If you happen to be a genetics nerd, um, and if, <laughs> Um, and, you know, so it affects different people in different ways. Um, the classic, you know, person with albinism um, has uh, what people think of as a stereotype. They have very light hair, poor vision, um, very light skin, uh, trouble with the sun, that kind of thing. Um, I don't really have that, the physical appearance as far as I, I look like, the, you know, for the most part, like the rest of my family. You know, I don't have my, my skin tone is what you would expect for somebody of um, mostly descended from people in the UK and Germany and that kind of that part of Europe. Um, so, but the thing with me is I have all the textbook uh, visual impairment, the, the trouble with bright light, the lack of depth perception, um, and just the, the lack of a visual acuity. So I'm in the United States, I'm considered legally blind. I'm actually certain ways um, out beyond that. Um, so I've always been referred to or called um, sort of visually impaired and which is very complicated. I'm not going to get into all the different names and terms and whatever in the universe of, of visually impaired and, and um, blind. That's a whole other sub conversation, but I, Growing up, I've always believed for a variety of reasons that although I had not such great vision and I can't drive and I couldn't see uh, what was on the chalkboard um, and I had to hold books up to my nose, you know, all, all those different things. I just believed that if you um, worked really hard and were really smart and tried, you know, just tried really hard, that it would be possible to just be sort of quote normal. Um, and I tried really hard for a really long time to be quote, you know, quote normal. It, it sounds like it's sort of like the ableism version of the American dream. <laughs> it is. the It is. <laughs> you too could be, you know, yeah. Um, it, it is sort of, it's a kind of internalized ableism. There's a fine line between the, um, you know, the belief uh, between having really high expectations and not believing sort of stigma not believing things that you're told that you can't do and sort of figuring out for yourself, you know, what you want to achieve and going for it, which is really important. And I'm, I, I'm definitely here for that. Um, there's a fine line between that and just, and sort of denial and not accepting that maybe you don't exactly do things the way everybody else does. And maybe you have certain limitations. Um, and, but I believed I, I really into my mid thirties, I just believed if I just tried hard enough that I would somehow be good enough that people wouldn't, you know, people, um, 
people sometimes still say that dreaded phrase, well, I don't see you as disabled. (laughs) You know, that's a whole other conversation we can have, but um, in the chronic illness community, it's, but you don't look sick. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like that. I don't see you as disabled. So that, and that has always been because I'm working really hard to not make it anybody else's issue. Um, and like I said, high expectations for people, you know, and believing people can make their make choices about what they want to achieve, you know, and of course, everyone has limits, but make choices about what you want to achieve. That's important. That's fine. Um, but sort of trying to erase reality is not fine. And is in fact, actually really damaging. Um, and eventually, and became really damaging for me at various points in my life. Um, and so I eventually realized that it wasn't just a situation that I sort of had to deal with and I was out here all on my own and, you know, nobody understood me and whatever. There's an, that's not a very helpful thought process. Um, and there is an entire world of people of, of all different kinds of disabilities, uh, different kinds of visual impairments and all the other kinds of disabilities um, out there. Um, and I feel um, much more like myself and much more centered and much more able to assert what I need when I connect with those people. And when I, you know, when I stay in touch and realize I'm not the only one. Um, Sort of give you your personhood back. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, when I was a child, I went, I spent two weeks a year for a number of years at a camp for blind and visually impaired kids. And that was like one of my happy places. It was my only happy place, but it was one of my happy places. And when you're in a school where you don't have even, even, in the, even though the schools I went to were not small, when you're in a school where you don't really have any other um, peers with a visual impairment or very many other disabled peers, period. Um, it's really important to have that contact with people. Um, that maybe understand something about what it's like to be a kid in your situation. And then when I was a teenager, uh, the summer between my 10th and 11th grade year, I spent a really life-changing, really important summer in a college prep uh, program for blind and visually impaired students um, at Drew University, um, which is in Madison, New Jersey. And it's a magical, I don't know if it's actually still a magical place, but it was a magical place that summer. it, it was a very formative experience and it meant that, uh, and, and, you know, camp was supposed to be fun, but Drew was about getting your act together, life skills. Let's talk about reality. Um, mm-hmm. How are you going to uh, do what you need to do to get through undergrad? And it meant that I felt so prepared by the time I went away to college two years later um, that, I mean, it really just, it, for a number of reasons, it's changed my life. That was the good thing about it. The bad thing about it, um, or not just, uh, is that at that point, after that program was over, I also aged out of that camp program. And it was was like kind of being dropped off a cliff for a variety of reasons. And um, I did not remain in touch with visually impaired blind and blind peers. And um, well, and I think we're both old enough that some of those years, again, it's like the pre cell phone. That's right. Like it, you didn't have one number that followed you around. <laughs> so it was a lot more work to stay in touch with people. Well, not only was it a lot of work, but it was expensive. Yeah. It was expensive. And it was like, oh my gosh, you're going to call another area code? You know, how are you going to pay for that? Sorry, my my mind just flashed back to like teenage me trying to figure out where the area, because in I grew up in Montana. So like long distance wasn't always set by the area code. So you sort of had to know where the boundary was and I didn't know which side. Yeah. Whole different story. (laughs) Completely unrelated. But yeah, like that pressure was real. Right. I mean, it makes me feel really old to talk about how even in the same area code, if you call two or three towns over, that was going to cost you money. (laughs) That was going to show up on your parents' bill. They were going to be like, who are you talking to at 12211 blah, blah, blah at 2 a.m.? (laughs) right well and and not even necessarily the at 2 a.m like why were you making long distance calls okay and why is it an hour and a half long and why is you know and so you basically you could talk to people on the phone and you could send them 
letters and really, you know, that was, that was it. Um, I was in South Jersey um, and for people from Montana, this makes the rain hurt and I'm sorry. Um, New Jersey can, and don't, don't email me about this people, but New Jersey can be divided up depending on who you ask into three sections. And the majority of kids from sort of that universe that I knew that came from North and Central Jersey. And that's a long way back in, back in those days, back before <laughs> email, back before GPS, back before Facebook, blah, blah, et cetera. It was a long, it was a long way. My parents would drive me to camp. It was like a white knuckle, knuckle ride up the New Jersey turnpike with like paper directions in hand. Like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. It says turn left at oh my God, wait, I think we missed it. Oh, they changed the name of the gas station. Is that the right gas station? I, you know what I mean? Like it, it was just, mm-hmm. everything was harder. It was, it was a different, or well, not everything. Certain things were harder. It was a different time. Yeah. So um, when I went to, uh, when I went to undergrad, uh, undergraduate, which was in um, Virginia, I really wanted to go somewhere different. I wanted to get out of the state of New Jersey. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. I, I had some peers at college who were in a variety of situations related to disabilities, but I wasn't particularly close to any of them. Um, We also had a really good director of disability services and I would sit in her office and vent sometimes, but I didn't, I kind of walked away from that sense of community. When I didn't, it didn't come back. I didn't have really an opportunity to find my way back in a sense until I would say about five years ago. And that's because people came looking for me, people that remembered me. You really spent most of your life, you know, wrestling with that like internalized ableism that I think we all have, but really isolated as a result of that. Right. And it, it, yeah. And, and sort of self, self-isolated with that illusion of, you know, if you just try hard enough, it'll be okay. And so, you know, and it, and that's exhausting. And it also, it does small things like it makes you afraid to ask for the PowerPoint ahead of the, yeah. you know, conference or say like, you know, I can't go to that thing because I can't get there or, you know, all these all these things, or to even have people to call when someone asks you a really inappropriate and ableist question in the ordination process, and you don't have anybody who can call who can really understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know I did the ordination process and I did seminary. Um, and, you know, it's sort of all still under this idea that if I only tried hard enough, um, it would all be okay. And that's not actually really how adult life works. Um, and that's not how, you know, that's just like, you don't, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be that hard. It doesn't. You know, you're allowed to breathe occasionally and you're allowed to need things and you're allowed to not be perfect. I didn't know that. And I didn't believe that for a very long time. But I can hear how that can sort of, I mean, it connects as strong, but sort of echoes how COVID-19 made this more important to you because you see all of those things you, you're, you know, you know, you've struggled with and lived with and, and resisted and gone along with and all those different ways we interact with troubling things in our lives, complicated things in our lives, um, suddenly being played out writ large in a, a whole new scale. Yeah, I, it, I suddenly watched the whole world saying, you know, like, if you're not, if you don't fit into this mold, then you don't count. Mm-hmm. Or you're not, you know, you're not worthy of whatever, of, of health, of, of safety, of whatever, um, you know, and it's, and it also, you know, and it became, so some, and I was, ex- and sci- somebody once said to me, I think you're only seeing it because you're looking for it. And I said, mm-hmm. damn right, I'm looking for it. Because I've never, I've never not been aware mm-hmm. that there are people who would like those who are different to be erased. I've always been aware of that. I've always known that that is, is a danger and that it's something we need to be on guard against. 
Um, and so, heck yeah, I'm looking for it. You know, so. How does that inform? Because I mean, like we've both been ordained and, and parish priests and you have done several other different kinds of ministry too for a lot of years. How does that knowledge and awareness and sort of like radar, how is, how have you brought that into your ministry? Um, you know, you talk about, uh, you, you talked about when, when I interviewed you about not asking people to, you know, be in a specific position in a, you know, a specific part of liturgy because God does not require us to do X, Y, or Z. Like our physical ability to kneel the altar rail does not determine our worth before God. Right. Um, so it's, I've noticed as we, and you know, we've talked about that beyond this, these interviews. Um, I've noticed I haven't always done a good job at some of those things because I spend a lot of time worrying about my own mm-hmm. accommodations in a liturgy setting, you know, and that's certainly something I'd like to improve on. But having said that, having said there's so much more I need to learn and there's so much more that I need to do as a parish priest um, and then sort of in, in the large other circles in which I might have a little bit of, you know, influence or whatever. Um, um, having said that, I try to give people the space um, to not be perfect. Mm-hmm. I found out, you know, I've told this story I, before, I think I find, I found out when I arrived at the parish that I serve now, that at one time there was someone there who required all lectors, all people who read scripture and liturgy um, to be eloquent and well, quote, well-spoken in a certain way. And there, mm-hmm. were, there were people who were literally told, you don't sound very good when you read. You're not going to be a reader here. And I find that really ableist and unfair. And I got rid of that right away. Um, I mean, I agree with all of that. Um, <laughs> but I also think of all of the like young people I have seen, because it's scary. It's scary to read from the Bible in public and it's scary to do it in front of people. Um, but all of the young people for whom, like, the ability to be a lector or to to do that was so important. And it, um, a theme I think we'll return to is these things we're going to talk about that are harmful are harmful to so many people. Yeah. I mean, and people come up to me, and this is true. I mean, this is true as a chaplain, as a when I was a hospital chaplain. This is true um, in a parish setting and, you know, in other settings, people come up and, you know, they, there are things that are lots of things that are whispered. Um, there's a lot of shame around a lot of things in life, not just disability, but all kinds of things that, you know, it's heartbreaking because so many things are part of the human, just lived human experience. And there are things that happen that are not, they're not shameful things. They're just things that happen. Um, and so I don't want people to feel like they're supposed to be ashamed before God of, of just because they are themselves because of who they are and just because of the body they exist in, because their life has been complicated because, you know, stuff that has happened to them. I don't want people to be driven, um, by shame. And so that thing about, you know, anybody who wants to read in, church is allowed to read in church. That's, that's one thing. Um, and otherwise, um, I sometimes think just kind you know, just having a, um, a priest who uses obvious accommodations. I use my laptop on the altar. I use, um, I use a foot pedal to scroll my laptop. So my hands are free to celebrate communion. I use huge print on my laptop. It's so big that the, that in non COVID times that the choir can read my laptop over my shoulder. And sometimes I, I kind of laugh because I I'll, I'll skip ahead or I'll scroll really fast and I'll hear them behind me get lost, which is hysterical. <laughs> I'll try not to laugh in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer. Cause I just, I, I just jumped because I'm not doing it for anybody else. They've got, you know, the bulletin or whatever in front of them. I'm, I'm doing it for me. I'm scrolling for me. And I love that. Also captions are for everyone. (laughs) It's hysterical. Yeah. It's like having the whole service 
you know, if you're in the chancel, it's like having the whole service or not the whole service, but that part of the service, because we have an east facing altar. So my back is to them. It's like having a whole service closed caption for you or the whole Eucharistic prayer release closed captions. Hysterical. Um, but I, my hope is that even just by me being around and struggling with certain things um, and having to you know, design my own, usually design my own accommodations, right? Because I know mm-hmm. what works for me and that's fine. And I've always done that. I hope it gives people a little bit of permission to accept whatever their situation is, regardless of whether that's a disability related situation or not. I hope it's a little more humanizing for people and mm-hmm. maybe gives them a more, a little, uh, more of a sense of self-compassion. Those are such important gifts. Um, you're talking about humanizing people. And I mean, in the back of my head is like the little meme version of Robin, which doesn't exist in real life. And I'm grateful for that. <laughs> uh, jumping up and down saying like, you mean like Jesus did? <laughs> Um, which, which is my segue to my next question. Um, one of the things we've talked about a lot, uh, sort of off the mic and, and we'll talk about on the mic as we get there are, um, how interpretations and in parts of the Bible are not always helpful, which is like mm-hmm. a significant yeah. understatement. They're often just, yes. har- harmful. Um, how do you bring your visual impairment to the Bible and how does that interact with your reading of this text? That's I know so important to both of us. So I, I want to backtrack here and say um, something that actually upset some folks in seminary, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, which is that sometimes growing up, uh, I, I came, I come from a very hardcore Episcopalian family Um we did all the church things all the time. Um, and sometimes growing up, I would, I would come into church on a certain Sunday and I'd sit down and I'd look at the bulletin and I'd look at the reading assigned for the day. And I'd be like, oh, crap. Really? Here we go. And it would be some story you know, one of the, so usually the, you know, usually the gospel that would set me off, but it would be a story about disability, mm-hmm. be a miracle, a healing story or some, you know, some other story about disability. And I think, oh no, this is going to be a thing where I'm going to, I'm going to have to sit through something, a sermon or whatever, that's not going to really be um, related to the lived experience of having a disability. Um, but I would never have been able to phrase it that way. All I knew is that it made my stomach queasy. Mm. I, I didn't have words for it. I just knew I was going to be upset for the rest of the service. Um, yeah. Which is a terrible way to come into church. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, um, I, I know there, I said that out loud maybe once in seminary and maybe, mm. pri- maybe in private settings, maybe with just a few friends a few times, but in larger settings, I said it out loud maybe only once or twice and people didn't like it. Um, mm-hmm. But the truth is that some of those stories, it can be, can be used in a lot of, in, in harmful ways. Sometimes it's how they're preached. It's not the story. And it's not necessarily the story itself. Sometimes it's how it's preached. It's preached. If you Mm -hmm. preach a story in a way that um, either is just about using a person with a disability or a disability as a metaphor or as a tool or, you know, just to get your point across, um, that's, you know, and it just sort of objectifies people and it's really damaging. Um, It can be really hurtful. Um, If you use it as a way to try to make other people feel like they're, they should be grateful for how good they have it because, well, at least you're not like these poor people. Uh, that's another thing that happens. You know, if you, if you use it as a way of saying, if you pray hard enough, then you'll get this miracle, just like this man who met Jesus. Um, that's yeah. really damaging as well, because most people never get their miracle that they want They're And that's Jesus not to say new. Like, there's the text where Jesus says, like, there were other people who weren't healed. Yeah. 
And most people, I was a hospital chaplain for a long time. Most people don't get that miracle that they really want and they pray pretty hard for it. So when I, I, you know, that's something you don't want to hear from the pulpit that somehow if you pray hard enough or if you do the right things or if you're the right person or you encounter Jesus in the right way, then you're going to get healed just like fill in the blank with whichever miracle story happens mm-hmm. to be on the, on the lectionary for the, um, for that day. Um, and then the other thing that is really harmful, I think, is when we use, we misunderstand those stories to use them as benchmarks for wholeness and healing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one of the, uh, something that is very ableist, um, is considered ableist in most disability corners is the idea that um, everybody wants to be fixed and that you're only good enough you're only okay if the thing that is your disability or your illness or the multiple things or you know whatever it is you're dealing with, if, if that thing is made to go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are lots of things that people deal with that they really don't want to deal with. I'm not saying that, 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 that people, everybody just wants to stay exactly as they are. There are plenty of things that people would rather not have happening. There are, you know, accidents and, and, and congenital conditions and, illnesses and all kinds of things people wish had never happened. Um, but to assert that people are only whole if they're in some kind of physically perfect, mentally um, mentally exactly the way you want them to be, neurotypical, et cetera, et cetera, body and mind is very, um, is very ableist and very harmful. And doing it in the name of God is worse. Well, and um, that reminds me of how much of your you talked about earlier of, you know, it was the community of people with similar um, disabilities with a variety of vision impairments that sort of let you reclaim your full personhood again. Right. It wasn't people with a more stereotypically normal visual experience who were like, Oh yes, no, here you can be yourself. No. Although I'll tell you in seminary, I'll, I'll give credit where credit is due. I, I did what I seem to always do in, in all settings, which is I have had what I, and I say this with, ut, with utmost affection. I had what I sort of consider like a ragtag band of friends, all of whom felt for one reason or another, or most of whom felt, I can't speak for all of them, but many of whom felt for one reason or another, they were sort of an outlier. Mm-hmm. It might've been it might've been their age. It might've been their sexuality. It might've been their ethnicity. It might've been where they came from. It might've, you know, it might've been a chronic illness. It was all different things, but I kind of felt like (laughs) I was fortunate enough to have those people around me. Mm -hmm. I had a very upsetting incident giving a presentation in a class one time where I, there was a woman who had, um, was in seminary who had been an official in a, in a diocese had, I, I, I forget canon for something in a diocese. And um, I was doing it. The one time I ever talked about disability in a class, I was doing a presentation with two other students. And she said, as one of her questions, you know, what makes you think that any congregation should provide reasonable accommodations to a priest? How dare you assume that that's appropriate? And I remember the room spinning and my colleagues who were up there with me answered the question, which was good because I was having trouble standing at the time. I was so caught off guard and it was the end of seminary. So I was supposed to be looking for jobs and there were no jobs. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember nobody said anything to me. Nobody said a word, not the professor. Not, and after that class, nobody said a word except one person came up to me in the sacristy and I know who it was. One person came up to me in the sacristy and basically said, I am really sorry. I saw, I, you know, they were in that class and they said, I saw what happened to you. I was there. I heard every word. I'm really sorry. Um, and, you know, when I did my presentation, people act, and it, they did a presentation on an issue that was close to their heart. And, um, and they said, I had a similar experience and I, I, I I'm really sorry. Um, and that was the kind of thing, you know, you, so even if it, even if there weren't people with the exact same experience, I would go looking 
you know, bonding with people, I guess, became friends with people that had sort of maybe not the exact um, sort of the typical seminary experience or maybe had something that was a little bit. Well, I'm reminded of something I was saying that, you know, I, I found people whose experience sort of echoed my own. It wasn't the same, but it was close-ish and that, that let it, that let it be something we could talk about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I want, I was, hold on a second. Lost my train of thought. Oh, going back, you know, going back to the question of, of the Bible, um, a while, a few advents back for maybe four or five, I don't even know at this point. I heard, um, Sonia Waters, who is a, prof- mm-hmm. a priest and a professor out of Princeton, who specializes, um, I believe, in the theology of addiction. Um, I heard her talk about the Gospel of Mark. And, um, you know, and she wanted to talk about the miracle stories. And I'm sitting there in my diocesan um, clergy uh, quiet day or clergy retreat day or whatever it was, um, sitting, you know, at the cathedral thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to listen to this for an entire day of my life. I can't get back. I mean, that was my first thought. I heard, oh, no, this woman's going to talk about. I'd never met her before. I'd never heard about her before. So she's, she starts talking about the miracle stories in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and she starts talking about people being... Um, sort of othered, you know, and if you, you know, I don't always like using nouns as verbs, but basically, yeah, people being outcasts in their community, people not feeling like they fit in, people being isolated. And she's talking about it uh, through the lens of addiction, Mm -hmm. but it worked really well. Also, you could do it through the lens of illness and disability. And she talked about um, the gospel of Mark having so much in it uh, at different levels, but one of the level is that Jesus brings people back into the community and gives them kind of their place in the world back. And I suddenly realized that I wasn't going to have to cringe through an entire day at Diocesan house. It was stunning. And I still, I, I, it changed how I preach on Mark and I still think about it. So I want to say like, nobody enjoys cringing through a day with your colleague. (laughs) No. <laughs> like for me, part of that cringiness is usually like, I wish we could do this in a way that worked for all of us. It was, you know, accessible for all of us, sort of. Um, just to disclaim that. Right. Um, but I think that leads to my next question, which is, um, are there parts of the Bible that are now richer for you? because you read them, you know, with this like lens of disability and visual impairment. Um, I, so, well, first of all, having listened to Sonia Waters, having done some, a little bit of study, I'm starting to learn living it and learning the theology and the sociology of disability. Um, those are two different things. So I have a lot of learning Mm -hmm. to do. Um, you know, being back in touch with people who are blind and visually impaired, all of those things, um, those things have been liberating uh, personally in many ways, um, but also, the, you know, just for me, theologically, for me as a preacher, for me as a priest. Um, and it, it means that I can rather than cringe when those things come up in the lectionary, I get kind of excited. Um, and I, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk to my congregation about this. Like, I can't wait to help them understand what is so interesting in, in this story? You know, I can't wait to, I used to be like, Oh God, I don't want to talk about the, any of the blind miracles. Oh God forbid. Um, now I get really excited. If I can talk about Bartimaeus, that's a really interesting story. Um, I, I get really excited to talk about the two men begging at the side on the side of the road to Jericho. Um, partially because I just got to go to Jericho, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but in all seriousness, um, the problem with people that go to the Holy land is they won't stop talking about it. But anyway, um, but, but I mean, that's <laughs> only a problem in a world where the rest of us can't make plans to then go. I, I know. Would. I know. 
I can't even go to like Pennsylvania right now. So, um, but, but to get back to the story of the two, the two blind men on the road to sitting beside the road on the road to Jericho. And there's a lot of things that are upsetting about that story. But one of the things that's really awesome about that story is Jesus asks them what they want him to do for, you know, for them. Mm-hmm. He, do, and he doesn't assume he knows. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe their brothers and their mothers dying, you know, I mean, who, who knows? There's so many things that they could need. There's so many things that would be wrong, going wrong in their life, in their family, in their community. So he checks in to see what is, what it actually is that they want. Um, so that becomes something where you can preach on autonomy and respect and boundaries and, you know, and, and, um, and how that it's, it's biblical to give people that kind of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, those stories have actually become really interesting and, and really important. Um, the, the other things I love um, are anything, and it's, you know, it's different places, but Isaiah is an example, um, parts of Revelation, anything where everybody gets to kind of come to the party. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's finding their way up the holy mountain somehow. Um, somehow they're, you know, the holy mountain's a ramp or it's flat or it's, you know, everybody is streaming into the gates of the of the great city. I mean, all of those. Um, I really enjoy those. Uh, and so much of that is, and, you know, and it's not just, it's not just some sort of, I don't know vague idea about everybody being welcome or whatever. I mean, many of those are very specific in naming people that would have had been very vulnerable at that time and, and saying that those people come to the, get to come to the table. Those people are part of the kingdom of God. Um, so I, I, I really like those. I'm huge. I mean, I, I mean, who doesn't like Isaiah, right? I mean, it's just beautiful, right. beautiful writing. Right. Right. Yeah. But it is also, it's not only, of course, it's beautiful, not, but it is also um, a, an evergreen, um, you know, and Isaiah is complicated, right? There's multiple sections, mm-hmm. there's all different stuff in there. I'm not saying it's, I, I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush, but um, it is a sort of an evergreen reminder that all the sort of modern um, stuff of sort of deciding who gets to count and who doesn't is just is 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 really just evil there's no way around it it's evil um, when and I it is not of god how early isaiah is because i mean that sort of i mean in today's world we would label as this like progressive liberal approach is actually like ancient and equally radical and divisive right. in its own way right right yeah and it's a nice um it's a nice counterpoint to all of the um, fear around illness and disability mm-hmm. and all the stigma and all, and all of the things that say, um, you know, if this bad thing happens to you, it is because you are cursed, mm-hmm. you know, or your parents did something sinful or you, you know, you somehow deserved it. In Isaiah, yeah. everybody gets to, everybody gets to come to the table or up the Holy mountain or, you know, to the, the kingdom of God. I mean, it's, a house of prayer for all nations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's good stuff. One of the definite gifts for me is I have spent more time around uh, people with various disabilities and people of faith with various disabilities is they offer these really rich and vibrant ways of understanding God that are life-giving for me. So thank you. Um, to return to some of the like more churchy things, because that, that is inevitably one of the things we will continue to talk about in great detail. Um, if you could mandate one thing for every church to have to start doing or practicing, what would it be? Gosh. Um, I know I'm only giving you like one. (laughs) One thing, well, you know, also that's just this is a hard question because um, disability is an illness, chronic illness, any kind, you know, any kind of difference. Um, 
these things are really complicated and they really vary from individual to individual. So there are so many things that you could say, you know, this would be really helpful, but then there'd be a whole group of people for whom that thing would, you know, while it would be fine, it would probably leave them out. Right. So um, accessibility is really is accessibility is important. Um, just basic accessibility and understanding and patience um, with different people's needs. I, I think those things are really important, but to say, you know, saying one thing, I mean, there are things like that I would like, I like would love every, every church on the planet to stripe their steps already. Some of us have no depth perception. Um, some of us, are, you know, have almost died on marble stairs before quite literally. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a very specific and niche kind of thing. Um, I am more interested, I think, in um, in changes in attitudes and perception, mm -hmm. um, greater representation in leadership, in lay leadership, um, in the ordained ministry, all uh, in particular. Um, those kinds of things I think are really, really important because when you have more representation, then people feel free to ask for what they need, freer to ask for what they need um, or to suggest how we might make things more accessible. Um, I, I would like to see more education around um, illness and disability and, and sort of a little bit of disability theory and theology so that stigma doesn't accompany um, so, you know, everybody brings all their different prejudices into the ordination process. Um, and so mm. those things are reflected in, in all of us. I mean, we all, we all have those kinds of issues in leadership and they're affected. So how people are treated by leadership, people in leadership, people who are ordained, people who are lay leaders, um, all that's affected by what kind of education and learning we've done around various issues. So I'd like to see issues around disability justice talked about it's barely talked about in the church it's really hard um, yeah. to find any robust and thoughtful discussion of those issues there are there's some tokenism um, kind mm -hmm. of stuff but uh, more developed discussion of those issues is, is hard to track down um, so I guess I guess that the attitude stuff is I think more important to me um, and the, the attitude stuff and the representation stuff is more important uh, to me than, than anything else. I think that is the end. here to talk about some of the content that will be coming out on the podcast we're laughing because we were just like discussing details and plans and all of the things we're, we want to do Stephanie do you want to share a couple of the things you're really excited we're gonna do on the podcast so uh, before we hit record we were talking a little bit about and getting a little carried away talking about um, the lectionary and yes. how some interesting things come up in the lectionary. And sometimes there are um, some classic approaches to preaching on them, which might be helpful or maybe not so helpful. And it's, it's um, actually a really fun topic because there are some alternative ways to talk about some of these disability related lectionary passages that come up, particularly as we're in, you know, if you're following the revised common lectionary, we're in your B. Um, we're doing a lot of Mark, or the Gospel of Mark this year, which means lots of stories about uh, Jesus traveling the Galilee region and uh, lots of healing miracle stories. Mm -hmm. Lots of opportunity, lots of challenge in that and a lot of opportunities. As well. Yeah. I did one of my exegesis papers in seminary on, on some of these stories and it was fascinating. And uh, so it's sort of connected to that. We also want to, make time to talk about some of the larger biblical themes and interpretations and and explore that lens of disability biblical studies 
which is out there and exists and they write some really cool stuff. So um, I'm really enjoying some of the interviews we have done and are looking forward to doing. Uh, I think we've mentioned that that's gonna be a significant portion of what you hear. Um, I'm also looking forward to doing, to interacting with some of the literature and media stuff that is out there. So everything from books to TV shows, to documentaries, um, some of which I've made my therapist listen to. <laughs> Have you really? Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> there you go. That's amazing. That's amazing. This is going to be my, um, my push or so that the kick that I need to uh, finally watch Crip Camp which I very much want to watch and also have been trying to find the right um, emotional space in which to watch it because um, I grew up going to a camp for children with disabilities and it was really important to me. And I yeah. think I've spoke about it in a, I think I, in a different interview. Yeah. yeah I think I've spoken think about just it the early one we just did. Yeah. It'll come up. The yeah. One you just it'll heard. come up again. You'll hear about it again. Um, so I very much have wanted to watch Crip Camp and also kind of try to figure out when's the right day for that sort of emotional trip down nostalgia lane. Um, so. And then connected to that, um, it's all is so deeply intertwined and I, I kind of love that we're talking about it in that way. But the story of Crip Camp is deeply connected to a lot of the disability activism and justice and disability theory. And I'm desperately looking forward to exploring some of that and uh, some of the people we're hoping will, will want to come talk about that with us. Um, because again, there's some really fabulous and amazing stuff being done that I, I want to be able to share with everyone. Yes, there are people that um, we, we see the work that you're doing and we're hoping to reach out to you. Uh, so <laughs> there are people doing some uh, really in, incredible work. I keep finding more of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it can feel sometimes when you're working on a particular issue that no one else is doing it. Um, and then when you start looking around, you find out, you know what, actually, there are many people doing some really great work worth uh, mentioning and highlighting and learning from. So uh, we're going to hope to do that as time goes on. Yes. Yeah, exactly how this all gets interspersed and balanced is uh, definitely going to be a work in progress. So if there's something you're dying to hear about or desperately want to talk with us about let us know and that will almost certainly help inform what comes out when because of course it would. I think the other thing that you and I talked about and we thought might be uh, helpful for people to know is our policy as far as um, interviews, editing interviews and um, you know sometimes people think about being interviewed or talking in or speaking in any form of um, media um, as something where, oh my gosh, I might say something and they're just going to take it and run with it. And who knows what's going to happen? Well, I was just watching a show and they had this whole uh, reporter storyline and something was on the record that they didn't understand. Like how being on the record was handled was a little bit unclear in parts of the story. And we don't want that. So, right our thing is that you always have the right to edit anything you have said, even retroactively. Right, so exactly. we'll send you a, a copy of what we've recorded and what we'd like to use. And if you can go, if you want to go through that and say, you know, this is actually not something I want everyone in the world to hear, or at least all of our listeners <laughs> to hear, um, we'll edit that out in a way that works for you. Yeah, uh, that was something that was uh, a priority, has been a priority for us from the time we first started talking about this, because sometimes you might speak about something in an interview setting uh, that later on you think, you know, I don't know that I want that out mm -hmm. there in the world to be found by anybody at any time. So, 
And I know we'll get into this at different points, but the whole um, realm of inspiration porn and using disabled people's stories in ways that may not accurately reflect how their lived experience works is not something we want to, we want to be very clear about not doing that. That's a good point, actually. And that's something that can happen when things are taken out of context. Um, and, you know, maybe done in a way that somebody wouldn't consent to if they you know, had a chance to review it ahead of time. So yeah, we absolutely um, want to avoid anything like that. And if I just named a concept, you have no clue what that is. Uh, stick around. I will come up. Yeah, we've talked about that as a possibility for an entire app. The issue of dis- of what people call inspiration porn, we've talked about as a possibility for an entire episode. Yes, because, because it's, it's a real thing in the church. <laughs> and I mean, it's a real thing yeah. in the uh, world. In the world. In the world. We don't, um, we're not here to throw the church under the bus. We're here to... Um, offer some education about things that happen in the world and the church, because, you know, it's not like there's a a wall or some kind of hard separation between the two. Um, Very true. So the issue of, of sort of inspiration porn is found kind of, you know, all over the place, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, So those are some of the things to look forward to having. If you think we have missed something that we should totally be considering as either a topic or again, an individual's episode, please do let us know. We have spent a lot of time and thought on this, but we also know that we have undoubtedly overlooked things. So we would love your input and participation. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners to talk about with multiple experiences of faith and disability. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Stephanie. Um, I know I find it encouraging when I hear about other people's sort of journey to identifying with disability or chronic illness and that it's not black and white, which is often how I I find it portrayed by non-disabled people. And I look forward as we continue to explore some of those tensions with how we relate to to scripture and and the Bible. And Stephanie, did you have anything you wanted to share? Um, Sure. I, so again, thank you, Robin, for interviewing me. That was um, actually a really enlightening experience to answer the questions out loud and to think carefully about some of those topics in a different way than perhaps I have before. Um, But the other thing I wanted to mention is that we've got some great content coming up Um, in our third episode. We have our first interview with somebody else who's not either me or Robin, and it's, it's a good one. It's a really great interview. Um, So yeah, it it is. So I'm really looking forward to uh, the other voices that we're going to be highlighting and to sharing those interviews with you all. You've been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at AccessibleAltar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at accessiblealter at gmail.com.